seated. Good morning. Y'all doing well? For those of you I've not met, my name's Steve. It's my privilege to be the pastor here, and we're delighted to have you. One thing I wanted to mention, uh, just real quickly, and this will be the last time uh, we've been talking about it for a while with COVID, it's gotten postponed, but we are uh, taking a trip over to Greece here at the end of May, and um, we're just, in fact, end of this week, we kind of get that 90 days out. We got about 20 that are going uh, at this point. And, uh, but at the, about 90 days out, you know, they get blocks of rooms and blocks of uh, seats on airplanes and stuff, and they start letting those go. So it doesn't mean that you can't sign up in March or whatever, but it just can be a little bit more tricky. So wanted to let you know if you had interest in joining us, one of the cool things we're going to get to do, it's a bucket list thing for me, is that uh, we'll actually uh, do Paul's journey through Greece. Then we're going to get on a boat uh, hopefully one that doesn't sink like Paul's, right? Uh, and But we're going to go to Iowa Patmos where John got this vision. And uh, then, in fact, we'll go as far east as Ephesus, which is the first uh, letter to the church there in, in Revelation chapter 2. So if you have interest, I got brochures up here. Again, I just wanted to mention it, won't mention it again, uh, but I wanted to do that one last time. If you got your Bibles, we're in the book of Revelation. And we are, last week, in fact, last two weeks, we did an introduction. Last week, we dealt with the first three verses. We're going to deal with verses four to six, so we're making incredible progress here. Uh, but again, I hope you bring your Bibles or you bring uh, the Bible app on your phone, right? Because it is the Word of God that is important. It's not, I mean, what Steve says, eh, uh, but the Word of God is one important, and I want you to, to be able to get into it, learn how to study it, and, uh, and to look at it. So I'm going to read out loud the text. If you'll follow along in your Bible, that would be great. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, and to him, to him be the glory, the dominion, forever and ever. Amen. So we are into the introduction piece. Now John is going to specifically address who he's writing to. And it is to the seven churches. Now one of the things that you need to understand is there were more than seven churches in Asia Minor, the west side of Turkey that he's addressing here. I mean we know of Colossae, we know of the church of Galatia. But these are seven that he specifically is going to be sending this letter to that he's going to detail in chapters 2 and 3. And so with them, we believe that John was in Ephesus. In fact, if you go to Ephesus, there's a place they think is the house where John lived. It's kind of up on a mountain. And if you remember, at the crucifixion, uh, Jesus said, hey, behold your mother, right? And they think that Mary was there actually with him. Uh, so... What he does now is he offers this greeting. And the greeting is a greeting of grace 
and peace. That greeting is one that is very common uh, in the New Testament. You see Paul uses it in many of his books. Peter uses it in both of his books. Uh, John uses it actually in the epistle of 2 John. He just adds grace, mercy, and peace. But it, it was common, right? Because grace, grace has to do with unmerited favor. God's favor upon us. It deals with relationship, right? We know God. So, oh, by the way, even though you may be facing persecution, maybe going through a difficult time, we believe this was written in the last uh, part of that first century. Uh, Domitian was the, was the emperor, was, was persecuting Christians all across the Roman world. Grace, right? Unmerited favor. God is going to be with you grace to you and peace the word here in the greek is the closest that we have to the hebrew word shalom which has the idea of not just a peace but the idea of well-being being settled no matter what's going on that in you you know kind of we would probably put it today that you're in a good space right your spirit is in a good space that's the idea of grace but the heart of this is not so much just the grace and peace, but what the source is. And his point here is that the source of this is from the triune God. That this comes not just as a wishful thinking, but because you belong to him, no matter what you're going through, my hope for you, my, my prayer for you is that you will know grace and peace in your present circumstances. And now he begins to detail this. Now, again, it's important for you, to, I, I think, to see this. So one of the, probably the best examples I can give is back in Romans, where, where Paul says this. He says, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, call the saints grace to you and peace from. From, right? That's the source. That's the supply. That's why you can know the, all the grace and all the peace that you need for this moment is there because its source is in God. Now, Paul in Romans actually just uses the first two members of the Godhead, the Father and the Son, where John here uses the Spirit and adds that, the, the three uh, part of the Trinity. But what's interesting are the descriptions. Because look, here's the first one. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, kind of first reading of that, wouldn't you think that he's referring to the son there, right? Who is or who was, who is, who is to come. Like I think it's even used of Jesus here in the book of Revelation. But yet, he clearly adds Jesus in, in verse 5. Why, why this description? Well, first of all, and we mentioned two weeks ago, I think, when we were introducing the book, to understand the book of Revelation, you've got to understand the Old Testament. Out of the 404 verses that are in the book of Revelation, something like 278 of them reference Old Testament scripture. So, 
who was, who is, who is to come. Well, what's he referencing? What he's referencing is the name of God that God gave to Moses and the children of Israel in Exodus 3. I am that I am. Yahweh, we call it Jehovah, right? He is the great I am, the eternally existent one. You think of Jesus when he was here in his seven great I am statements. I'm the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. You know, that he was taking equality with God because that's the name of God. So he's referencing back to to Exodus chapter 3, but it's still a little strange. It's strange in that if you were to break it down, who was, who is, wouldn't the third piece be and who is to be. Wouldn't that be the proper tense? But he talks about who is to come. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that in the Greek, and by the way, I am not a Greek scholar, and I don't play one on Sundays. But those who are tell us that actually this in the Greek, who was, who is, and who is to come, is actually a proper name. But one of the things that we see is that this is the name that John uses again a couple times to reference the Father. For instance, look down at verse 8. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You skip over to chapter 4, verse 8. And you remember chapter 4 is the scene of heaven. And the one sitting on the throne and is leading into chapter 5 and, and him having that scroll. And it says this, And for the four living creatures, and each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So again, there, tying back to Isaiah chapter 6. But he uses this expression, who was, who is, and who is to come. So clearly it's referencing the, the, the eternality of the Father. But why who is to come? And again, we can, we can only speculate. But my sense is, is that of course in the triune God, the the Son emanates from the Father to do His will. And because our God is one, who simply exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the closeness between the Father and the Son, and, and you know, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then you actually get to the end of the book, right? Because this is the revelation of Jesus, but it ends in eternity in chapters 21 and 22. And what does it tell us? Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he shall dwell with them. You get to chapter 22 and it talks about how there's no sun and moon because the, the, the lamb is his light and, and, and the father and that we will see him. And so that he will be dwelling with us. So grace and peace from the eternal one, the father. The second person the Godhead that he deals with here is, is the Spirit. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Seven spirits. How many Holy Spirits are there? One, right? 
So why seven spirits? It's been a bit of a quandrum. So some people have looked and said, well, the word he uses here, spirit, is pneuma. Sometimes in the New Testament, pneuma is used of angels. So maybe what he's referencing here is the seven angels, which we're going to see later in the book of Revelation, to whom God is going to bring the judgment, right? They're going to pull out the bowls and all of that. But you have a practical problem and a theological problem if you go that route. The practical problem is this. John mentions angels a zillion times in his books, and he never uses the word pneuma to reference them. Secondly, let me ask you, theologically, does grace and peace come from angels? No. It comes from God. In fact, one of the, one of the issues that was going on at the end of the first century was angel worship. And the book of Revelation is actually very anti-angel worship because John even mentions that this angel who brought him the, the, a lot of the visions that he fell down before and the angel said, no, don't do that. I'm just another servant. Worship God. So it's not angels. Well, some then have looked at, there's a verse in Isaiah talking about the coming Messiah and Isaiah 11 and 2 it says this the spirit of the Lord will rest on him all right so we're talking about the spirit the spirit of wisdom the spirit of understanding the spirit of counsel and strength the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord maybe that's what he's referencing but did you see the problem there's six descriptions not seven now, you might want to punctuate it funny to get seven, but it's, it's not there. So I don't think that's what it means. So what does he mean by the seven spirits of God? Now, again, we've already seen, he goes back to, to uh, Exodus chapter 3 to remind us about God. There's a passage. It's in Zechariah chapter 4 which by the way he's going to reference later on in chapters 4 and 5 let me give you a little background to Zechariah Zechariah was the first prophet after the exile so remember they went to Babylon you got Daniel you got Ezekiel and then they went back the first going back was in 536 BC under a man by the name of Zerubbabel and Zerubbabel went back under the direction of Cyrus to rebuild the temple. But when they got there, they got its foundation laid and they were able to actually get the, the altar and they began to sacrifice. But then all kinds of persecution came in from the people of the land and from the Persians and they had to stop. And the book of, of Zechariah is encouraging them and when you get to chapter 4 which is where I'm going to take you in chapter 4 it is a vision that God is going to cause this temple to be fully rebuilt under, under Zerubbabel so when you get to Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 2 it says this he said to me what do you see and I said I see and behold a lampstand all of the gold with its bowls on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. 
pretty innocuous at this point, right? Seven lamps. But you continue to read. There is no more seven of anything until you get to verse 10. And in verse 10, he says, for who has despised the day of small things, right? Because they began and then they had to quit. But these seven, what seven? Well, only thing in the text is back to these seven lamps that are on the candlestick. These seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand is the rubble. These are what? The eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. So the idea here is that whatever these little lamps are, they are the ones who basically causes God to be omnipresent. He sees everything. He knows what you're going through, right? He, he to, to Zerubbabel, he is the one who sees the opposition but will help you finish this. Still not convincing, though. Except that there's a verse between verse 2 and verse 10 that many of you know. Many of you have quoted. It's Zechariah 4.6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What's he talking about here? The seven light. It, it's in his picture, it is the Holy Spirit. It is the one who's going to accomplish this. It is the one who sees all that is going on. And yet, Zerubbabel, you are going to accomplish the building of the temple, but it's not going to be by your strength. It is going to be by mine. It is the power of the Lord. So my, my sense is, is that that's exactly what John is referencing here. And from the seven spirits of, of God that he's referencing Zechariah chapter 4, that, oh, by the way, God said something was going to be accomplished. They're facing persecution and difficulty, but it's going to happen. Not by your strength, not by your might, but by the power of the Lord. The third member of the, of the Trinity here is in verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, which is really in essence simple right we don't have to question like like if he just said the father and the, and the spirit we would have been okay right they were unique descriptions well what's interesting as simple as this is from jesus christ i think just like he went back to the old testament with the father and just like he went back to the old testament with the son i think he's actually referencing something here because he uses this expression and from Jesus Christ now we know Jesus is the personal name of the son of God correct the, uh, the angel Gabriel came to to Joseph and said she's going to bear a son and you're going to name him Jesus why because he's going to save his people from their sin that is his personal name Christ, we often use it, but Christ is not like, it wasn't Joseph's last name. That's not it. Christ is a title. It means the anointed one. It means Messiah. That's its reference. And what I find fascinating, he is the promised one, the one who is the Messiah. Oh, by the way, the Messiah is coming out of David. The Messiah ties back to promises God made to Israel. And so he uses that term, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. 
He uses it three times in the book of Revelation. Oh, by the way, we've read them all. It's in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's in verse 2, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. Never again, he uses it. Because what he's doing here, as he introduces Jesus, just like when he introduced the Father and he went back to, I am that I am. And just like when he introduces the Spirit and he takes him back to Zechariah 4 and God's promises there, when he introduces Jesus, he's pointing back to the Old Testament. And I believe it is Psalm 89. And if you're not familiar with Psalm 89, by the way, if you ever struggle with this, the question of can you lose your salvation, you ought to settle down on Psalm 89. Because Psalm 89 is about God's promise to David that God would cause his throne to endure forever. God gave that promise to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He says, your house, your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. That was the promise. But what happened to David's throne? Well, did all David's sons follow after God? No. In fact, Solomon, by the end of his life, didn't. Rehoboam didn't. Many of the others didn't. In fact, ultimately, the kingdom would be taken into captivity. There would be nobody on his throne. So Psalm 89 comes back to this promise that God made to David. And it it reminds us of it early in, in Psalm 89. In verse 3 and 4, it says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. God made a promise to David. Now, from there on, it's but, but what happens if David's sons don't follow? What happens if David's sons turn away from the Lord? And God talks about how he will discipline them and he will meet them. But the heart of this gets in about verse 33 through verse 37. He says this, but I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. You know, we just sang about the faithfulness of God. He's faithful. He, you know, <laughs> I had to laugh. We sing that song, and I love that song because with how we mean it, it's true that there's nothing our God can't do. Can I tell you that theologically that's actually not accurate? And our philosophy professor from GCU reminds me of that every time we sing it. Because I can tell you one thing God can't do. God cannot go back on a lie or on a truth. He cannot go back on a promise. He cannot. He is, he is eternally consistent. He is truth. He, so if he makes a promise, just like Paul says in Romans chapter 11, that the gifts of God, the promises of God are irrevocable. So God made a promise to David. He says, his descendants shall endure forever. His throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful. And so what, what, is, what is John doing here? 
The revelation of Jesus Christ is about God keeping his promises to David. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the promised one. Jesus, the anointed. It's interesting. You get to Revelation chapter 5. And you remember there's that seven-sealed book that nobody can open. And John begins to weep. And the elder says to him, Stop weeping, John. Behold the line that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. That's who Jesus is. You get to chapter 22. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Well, that's what he's referencing here. And, and what you can see is you can see it in these expressions. So he gives three expressions about Jesus, the faithful witness. Do you know nowhere else in the New Testament is that a reference is that used to describe jesus but it's used in psalm 89 in fact we just read it verse 37 it shall be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful that's where he's drawing it from now when he says the firstborn of the dead there is one other place in the new testament it's in colossians 1 but when he says firstborn, it's not the first in order, but it's the first in priority. And guess what? You go back to Psalm 89, and what does it say? About the Messiah, I will make him my firstborn. Now, was Jesus the firstborn of the flesh? No, that belonged to Anan. But was Jesus the, the firstborn in priority? Absolutely exactly who he was and then he uses the third phrase he is the ruler of the kings of the earth well we read in scripture you know in the new testament that you know he will be the king and he will rule but it never uses the ruler of the kings of the earth and yet you go back to psalm 89 verse 27 the highest of the kings of the earth folk this is so good jesus is identified as the messiah he is the fulfillment of God's promises. Remember two weeks ago, we talked about when you come to the book of Revelation, you've got to determine, are you going to look at it as something in the past? Are you going to look at it as just allegorical or figurative and would just get principles out of it? Or do we look at it as literal? If we look at it as literal, then it's all future because it hasn't happened yet. And that God is literally going to fulfill his promises to David and to Abraham. And all of those Old Testament promises that, that have not. And that's exactly what the book of Revelation is about. The book of Revelation is about Jesus literally fulfilling. And so you think about grace and mercy coming from a Godhood who all, oh, by the way, is eternal, who knows exactly what's going on and is the one who is going to fulfill every promise. And if he can do that to the, all the universe, he can do that to you. See, that's where we find grace and peace. Oh, I got to hurry. Okay, so then... 
out of this just kind of comes this outburst of praise because John's mind is so focused on Jesus. So if you go back to to verse 1, what do we see? Well, Jesus is the object of the revelation. This is the revelation of Jesus. Jesus is also the source of the revelation. Jesus is the source of grace and peace in the midst of all of this. And so it's almost like at this point, he kind of quits for a moment that this whole describing an introduction and everything and just kind of breaks out into this to him to him right this this doxology of praise to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood and he has made us to be a kingdom and priest to his god and father to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever what a wonderful beautiful peace to him who loves us Now, may I suggest that the most important piece that you see out of that is the fact that that word is loves, which is present tense, and it's not loved, which is past tense. Can't tell you how many Christians I run into from time to time who, you you know, Jesus loved me, right? He died for me, they know that, but they somehow think that he doesn't love them today. Folk, if you know Jesus, he loves you today. No matter what you're going through. In fact, oh, by the way, let's put this in context here. Context. John, who has faithfully served the Lord for probably at this point close to 70 years, is now on this little island, which is just, it's really nothing more than a little bump in the middle of the ocean. It was a penal colony. And he's not like, you know, sitting there in the Mediterranean having this great retirement with people, you know, serving him and all. There's hardly any food. He's there. He's away from the people that he loved. He's away from the churches that he ministered to. And yet in that moment, what he reminds us of is, that that our our Lord Jesus loves us. And I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know maybe what medical issues you're dealing with or what financial issues you're dealing with or relationship issues. But can I tell you that if you know Jesus, he loves you. He didn't just love you back at the cross. He loves you today. And his promise is he's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. And some of you say, but Steve, you don't know what I'm doing. Well, if you know Jesus, he loves you. He may not be all that happy with you in this moment, right? Every parent can understand that. But he does love you. And he desires that you would walk with him. Do you remember Paul's words in Romans 8? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? With tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. I've mentioned this before. I'm going to mention it again. It concerns my heart how many Christians that appear to me to be living in fear today. They're fearful of tomorrow. (laughs) They're fearful of UFOs now. They're fearful of what's going on in our country. They're fearful of what's going on in the world. 
they're fearful of what you know what's happening folk who will separate us from the love of christ and the implied answer is absolutely nothing not tribulation, not distress, not persecution. So if the worst thing, if the world goes to hell in a handbasket tomorrow, right, the thing he can never take away from us is that God loves us and he is with us and he is going to walk with us all the way through the journey. So that's why Paul says, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, none of it, none of it can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember what Paul told Timothy? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love. He loves us. We don't have to fear nothing. Then he moves on and he says, who, and he released us from our sins by his blood. He is the one who set us free. <laughs> that we've been forgiven. Our, sin, our, our sins have been drowned in the deepest of the sea. And Jesus put up a no fishing sign. Right? Who's released us? Man, no guilt. Again, I, I run into Christians all the time that are so tied down to stuff in their past and they've taken it over and over to the Lord and I kind of wonder if maybe sometimes we go to the Lord and we're just confessing it one more time and just feeling so guilty and God says, What? What? I don't even know what you're talking about. Why? Because he chose to forgive it. He chose to forget it. We have been released, but not only released from the guilt and the condemnation, we're released from its power. And this is where, honestly, there are people here right now who this is one of the pieces of the word of God that you won't believe. Because you've got something that's got a stronghold in you. And you just think that there's just no way. And you can call it an addiction, or you can call it a propensity, or you can call it a heretical, or a, a, a thing of heredity. But the reality is he released us by his blood. We don't have to walk in bondage to sin. What did he do? Well, he forgave us, number one. Secondly, he put his Holy Spirit, which... Remember what Zechariah said? It's not by our might, our powers, Holy Spirit. Then he gave us his word. So we get into his word. We renew our mind. He gave us one another to bear one another's burdens. There is victory. He released us from our sins. And how did he do it? Through his blood. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold. Oh, by the way, not from your sins but from your futile way of life. That's the bondage. You were redeemed out of it through the blood, the precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and unspotted. Third thing we see is that he also made us a, a part of his kingdom. He has made us to be a kingdom. Paul put it like this in Colossians 1.13. He rescued us from the power of darkness the domain of darkness and he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son do you understand that there is a kingdom of god today 
It is an invisible kingdom. But it's here, right? Children of God. You can go down the street and find another group of the children of God. You can travel to the East Coast. You can find part of that kingdom. You can travel anywhere around the world. You can go to Japan, right, in a country where there's like 0.02 people. That, but you can find it. It's the kingdom of God. It is an invisible kingdom. But the promise of the book of Revelation is one day what is invisible will be made visible. Jesus will rule and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords and every knee will bow and you and I who have been a part of his invisible kingdom, this kingdom that we have been transferred into, we will rule and reign with him. And in that kingdom today, what has he done? He's made us a kingdom of priests. We talked about this at the end of the book of Hebrews. Today, our job is to be priests, to bring people to God, to reflect him to them. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 5, your living stones are being built up a spiritual house for a royal priesthood. Why? To offer up spiritual sacrifices. This is why living on mission is so important. This is our job as Christians, to give our lives as living sacrifices, to live on mission for him. And then he even goes a few verses later. But you are chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people of god's own possession soul so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him we're, we're the ones that are to be his ambassadors we're to bring people to him that is our job in this kingdom this invisible kingdom that we live in that's why today as as john starts his evangelism training some of you need to be a part of that because you know that's what you're called to do but you don't feel confident that's our job that's our job and in the midst of it he just breaks out into this incredible doxology to him be the glory the dominion the idea of dominion is strength forever and ever amen folk this is who our God is he is a God who provides grace and peace in the most difficult of circumstances we have a Savior who loves us today and has released us not only from the guilt and condemnation of our sin, but he has released us from the power of sin. Because we today are to be his priests, his ministers in this invisible kingdom. And if you're here today and you've not come to put your faith in Jesus, he stands there with arms wide open, right? You say, well, you don't know what I've done. Oh, I don't. I don't care. Jesus knows. He's died for it. If you'll come. He will embrace you. He'll forgive you.